Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. So I'm going to try and sort of balance a number of different suggestions that I got about what I should maybe talk about today. Um, Monica asked to if I would um, maybe talk about uh, something that apparently I wrote, although I had to reread it to remember what it said <laughs> from some years back um, about breathing and uh, about sort of sus sustaining a certain kind of focus and practice. Um, and and Tim asked if I would maybe say something about uh, what Ashtanga represents or what it means to me or sort of I think the question was like what do I what do, what do I see myself as trying to do in practicing Ashtanga and what is it that I'm trying to do um, invite others to do in teaching Ashtanga maybe that would be the question um, and I mean for myself I always like to um, sort of have a certain image or a certain idea or a certain myth, perhaps, um, to sort of focus um, conversation. And so I thought I would um, start by giving you a, a really sort of concise um, retelling of um, a, a certain creation myth from um, Indian tradition. Uh, and in the course of that, um, I'll hopefully enter into um, a, you know, a certain currents of answer that I might give to those other questions. Okay, So um, the myth that I thought I would tell you here um, is the myth of the, the churning of the cosmic ocean. Right? It's, a, it's a sort of creation myth and it, it starts uh, in a circumstance where uh, the, the devas, who are the beings of light, uh, and who are always warring with their cousins, who are called the Ashuras, and they're kind of demonic figures. They're all Ashtanga practitioners, in other words. And the, you know, the devas, they do like integral yoga. Okay? So, um, and they're always battling it out with each other for control over this milky white substance called soma. Okay? I was fighting to procure this particular elixir. Okay? I think you can buy some down on the beach, actually. <laughs> maybe, on, maybe they're all out on Sunday morning, but in any case, this story begins at a certain moment where the, um, the devas can't find any soma around. Like It seems to have dried up somehow. Okay, and um, so they go to Vishnu and they ask him, "What can be done? You know, can you point us toward the soma? Where can we find it?" And the so when they ingest the soma, they have um, experiences. Uh, of they have t transcendent experiences of, of of the infinite, of the timeless, of the deathless, of the absolute, right? And they, so they feel a certain intimacy with those more primitive dimensions of reality when they ingest this substance and they're really into it. Okay? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
it's easier to get now in certain places in the world. Okay. But these were different times. So I'm kidding. Um, so Vishnu says, well, the only way to, um, to procure any soma is to distill it out of the cosmic ocean. And I have a, uh, an idea for you about how you might go about distilling it from the cosmic ocean. I've engineered a solution. But you need the help of your cousins, the Asuras, in order to pull this off. They can't, and you know, they, they, those are their arch rivals, so they can't imagine asking them to help them procure the very thing that they're always fighting about, that they're, that, that, that they're always trying to take for themselves. But with no other um, solution in hand, they say, okay, we'll do it. Explain to us how to do it. Um, and so Vishnu explains, and they execute the plan as follows. They, they, you know, they enlist the help of the Asuras, and then they go to the cosmic ocean, and um, they take um, the biggest mountain that they can find, the big tall peak, and they put the peak in the middle of the ocean, and it, and it sinks. They were going to use it as a tool, and it sinks. So Vishnu incarnates um, as a giant turtle, right? After which Kormasana is named, incidentally, right? And he goes down and dives down into the cosmic ocean and catches this still sinking mountain, which in some versions of the myth is called um, Mount Mandara, and sometimes it's called Mount Meru, right? And if you're familiar with that imagery, that imagery also symbolizes um, in Hatha texts, central channel of the body, sometimes the spine itself, okay? So he slides down and he catches the, the mountain and he brings it up so that the tip of the mountain is just sticking above the ocean and the, 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 you know, most of the bulk of the mountain is down below and Vishnu's floating there as a turtle holding the mountain. And then they take the, they get this snake called Vasuki and they coil the snake. Remember snakes always play the role of selfless servants in these myths, usually, or often. So they coil the, the snake three and a half times around the mountain. And after much negotiation, the devas take the tail of the snake, and the asuras have to take the head, which they're not happy about. Okay? And they start pulling and releasing in turns so that this mountain is like spinning on Vishnu's back and it starts to churn the waters, okay? So they're churning and churning, and the first thing that happens is that all this like glitter comes up to the surface of the ocean, and there's beautiful music playing, and you know, unicorns and pandas and so forth, I don't know why. <laughs> and so this is, this is a very good sign, you know, and they're very happy, and, um, and they keep churning, and then these little like Creatures from the deep start popping up. These sea creatures start coming up that have a sort of, you know, and they're kind of kind of rude looking and fishy and, you know, as sea creatures can sometimes be, you know. And so, hey, get out of here, you know, you're you're ruining our thing. Get out of here. So they're like kind of just picking these guys out and throwing them aside and they keep churning. And then the creatures continue to rise to the surface, but they start to become increasingly grotesque, right? Increasingly ugly. 
And that's what happens when you go deeper and deeper into the ocean, right? I don't know if you saw that BBC series called The Ocean Deep, but <laughs> you see what's at the bottom of the Mariana Trench? My God, you know? So they, they, sort of, they, keep, they keep churning, and these really deep you know, creatures from super deep down in the cosmic ocean start coming up, and they're just absolutely repulsive, you know? And the gods and the demons are both like, ah, oh, they're kind of scandalized and, and disgusted, right, by these creatures that are starting to come up. And, um, you know, they're sort of angry, and Vishnu's saying, oh, just stay cool, it's okay, keep doing your work. And they're like throwing these guys out of the way. And then it gets even worse. So finally the creatures start coming up that are like these creatures that live, um, that were, have only really been captured on film for the first time in the last 10 years or so, that live at the very, in these like trenches at the very bottom of the ocean where sunlight doesn't even penetrate. And, you know, so these guys, um, if you've seen those kinds of creatures, they, you know, um, visual beauty has no evolutionary advantage down there because no one can see, okay? And so they, you know, <laughs> and so they're, they're just hideous, you know, they're kind of <gasps> repulsive and offensive in a certain way, to the senses at least, okay, to the eyes offensive to the eyes. So these kinds of things start coming up. And the devas and the asuras are like I was when I watched that BBC series, The Ocean Deep, where they finally went down to the trench and you're like, oh, what? You know? And they, they can't even touch these things. Like they're like, you know, and they, they don't even want to keep churning anymore. They're kind of, they're almost, they're paralyzed in a way, by what's coming up. They, they don't even recognize, like they didn't even know that stuff was down there, okay? This is an important part of the myth, okay? So at first, stuff starts coming up that's like, oh, I knew that was down there. Get out of here. And then stuff starts coming up that's like, oh, you're still down there? Get out of here. And then stuff starts coming up, you're like, And then it's, you know, stuff that you had no idea was down there. It's coming to the surface. And so the gods and demons are totally losing their resolve. And they say um, to Vishnu, like, we can't do this anymore. You know, and they're, they're starting to stop. And Vishnu's going, look, this is the only way. If you want the Soma, you have to keep working together and churning the ocean in just this way. Okay? There's, there's, no other, there's no other method than to dig deep. Okay, and so they continue to churn, and what happens next is that this big, this thick black sludge suddenly rises up to the surface and completely blackens the entire ocean. Okay, and they're so disgusted and so repulsed that they immediately drop Vasuki, the snake that they're holding, and they run to the shore, and they're. Um, are some beautiful images that you could find on Google after this talk if you want, of the devas and the asuras literally retching on the shore of the cosmic ocean, which also happens down here on Miami Beach on early on Sunday mornings. You know, it's usually after the soma has been ingested, 
this little inversion of the myth here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no soma yet, but it, th these are wonderful Indi uh, images from classic, uh, classical Indian painting of, this, of, this, of the gods and demons like literally throwing up on the shore because they're so disgusted at what's come up, you know? And that thick black sludge is um, referred to actually in the first verse of the Ashtanga invocation, it's the halahala. So the halahala comes to the surface, and um, the gods and demons completely release um, the, the snake. They go to the shore. They can't go back into the water. There's no way they're going into that, and what can they do, right? Um, and so, of course, like this is a metaphor for, you know, the churning is like the sort of like looking into the mind and look, looking into the, you know, looking into the embodied being, so looking into all of the memory and all of the sort of, um, you know, the imprints of, of past experience um, and all of the sort of impulses uh, and so forth that comprise the psyche and looking into that while sort of turning it in all directions, right? Looking, turning it over and turning it over and looking into it and, and combing through it and opening it up and all of this kind of thing, which is, of course, a metaphor for any kind of contemplative practice, right? But especially for a practice like Ashtanga, where you're like literally, you know, twisting your spine and bending it this way and bending it that way. And we all know how potent that can be for stirring up the waters of the psyche, okay? And, you know, what's described so far mirrors pretty well the, you know, the sort of archetypal experience of the meditator or, you know, the, the, the person who starts to look deeply into their psyche, which is like, you know, think at first you go to yoga class and it's all unicorns and pandas, right? Like the first week or something or the first, I don't know how long, first day, first year, something. It's like, oh, this is so cool. I found my people and you buy a you buy a month-long pass, and you get into the yoga pants, and <laughs> fill your closet with yoga pants, and you're you're so elated because you're sure you're going to be enlightened in six months, you know. And then one morning you come in, you know, early, and you know, oh, you know, and all of a sudden it starts working, and it's like, oh. <laughs> it starts to, all the contents of your mind, all the things that, that your personal consciousness was trying to push out of mind and suppress, it starts to reappear, right? And at first, maybe, it's not that deep. What first comes up is stuff that's maybe not that deep in the psyche, right? It's like, it's like you know, resentments and, um, and anxieties and, and fears and, you know, experiences of shame, maybe humiliation or arrogance, um, whatever, you know, from the not so distant past, right? And then you, oh, <laughs> you keep working, you keep moving and breathing, you get past it, the pandas return, you buy a new pair of yoga pants. Um, but you keep working diligently, and it's sort of, you know, and then you realize that that, that process of sort of unearthing uh, these 
um, sort of dark and shadowy figures from the psyche just gets deeper and, and sort of more intense, you know? And you're waiting for the inner light to just shine and fill you with spiritual illumination, and yet somehow, you know, all these creatures from the deep are coming up and totally ruining your vibe. <laughs> And this is very good news, of course. As you know, as seasoned practitioners, it means it's working. It means it's, 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 it's happening, right? That's that, that sort of confrontation with the, um, with the darker elements of your psyche is, is of the very essence of the exploration, right? It's not just an obstacle on the path or something that you have to go through in order to get to the other side. It's more like that's the journey, right? And so um, you keep going into that, and it becomes, becomes you know, what starts to be unearthed comes from farther back in your past and from farther back in your consciousness, right? And then at some point, things may start to come up that you don't recognize as being part of your personal past at all, and maybe it's not. Maybe it's archetypal experience in the collective consciousness or the collective unconscious mind. Um, maybe it's, you know, elements of experience that you've sort of, that some part of you has brought with you into this, into this existence, if you're inclined to entertain such thoughts, right? But no matter what you make of it, the fact that the one thing I can confidently assert is that if you go deep enough into it, those things will make their appearance. So then what finally happens is that, you know, when the black sludge comes up, that's like the, sh the shadow suddenly just casting itself completely over the psyche. And the shadow in the Jungian sense is like everything that the, that, the, that the mind has put out of the purview of its attention, of its awareness, of its immediate experiential access, or even its immediate memory, right? If all of the traces of experience that it couldn't uh, integrate or process, whether they were um, you know, events that happened uh, yesterday or events that are going on, sort of a pattern of experience that's happening in your life right now, or um, you know, traumas from 10 years ago, or traumas from the birthing experience itself, or maybe even traumas from being in the womb, or if you would entertain such thoughts, traumas from even earlier than that. <laughs> or later, perhaps, I don't know. So when the shadow really sort of casts itself over the attention, it's absolutely overwhelming. So the, the devas and the asuras, they represent, they're just, the devas and the, sh and the asuras are both projections of the ego, okay? And you can think of them as sort of like, um, uh, you know, animating forces in the mind um, that we, uh, you know, some of which we're sort of eager to identify with. Those are typically the forces that the devas represent. And the devas are, you know, the devas are beautiful and resourceful um, and they're creative and they're skilled and they're generous and they have a sense of justice pretty honest, you know, and um, the, uh, their sort of demonic cousins, on the other hand, are, um, they're cruel and 
they're they're rude looking they're they're obnoxious um, they're deceitful you know kind of sadistic perhaps even um, but they're also really seductive they can be really seductive yeah and the 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 um, the, de the devas um, can, they sort of like to wear their virtues on their sleeve. So if they're not properly acknowledged by their devotees or, or, or by one another, they can become just as vindictive as their demonic counterparts. They're very jealous, in other words. They get, and they can get really resentful and vindictive, okay? Because they're all projections of the ego, again, right? But the idea is that they both have to work together. All of those psychical elements that you um, that you identify with as representing, you know, what you're for in the world, and all of the things that you identify yourself against as being what you resist and what you refuse and what you condemn in the world. That you have to bring all of that, insofar as it's part of your psyche, to bear on. You know, to, to, and allow the force that's behind it to become the animating force behind your seeking, behind your practice. You see what I mean? So it's almost like, you know, what, like, what are your motives for practicing? Why do you do this? You know, do you do it because you have a crush on the girl that usually practices next to you in the morning? <laughs> or do you do it because you have a lot of anger to work out? Or do you do it because you want to be a better person in the world and serve others, right? <laughs> and it's all, and the idea is that in a certain sense, you don't have to choose because, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of all of it, right? <laughs> and, it's just, and it just depends on what you're actually sort of focusing in on in the moment when you're telling your story about why it is that you do what you do. But, so you should never, like, disparage anyone else's motives for practicing because in the end, we, you know, it's just part of a story and we sort of all have the same, you know, ultimate motive for practicing, which is that we're interested in going deeper and having a deeper experience of ourselves, a deeper intimacy with the, you know, with the vital forces that are, manifesting as our experience, right? And every, every other motive is just a confused inflection of that, right? But they're all sort of grasping for the same thing. So anyways, there's this environmental disaster now, right? Like the, uh, the Exxon Valdez oil spill that we had in the Gulf of Mexico some years back. It's like that bad, right? Everyone's pointing fingers at each other. Nobody knows what to do. Vishnu's like, I can't handle this one. So he sends a mental SMS to his buddy, Shiva, okay, who's meditating up on the mountain and receives the telegraph. I'm like, oh. And he's like, man, we need your help down here. There's a problem, okay? So Shiva comes down the mountain and he's got, all, he's got this entourage of Ganas, they're called the Ganas, and just, Gana just mean, I mean, it's kind of a rich word, but it's it kind of, let's say it just means attendant. He's got all these attendants that follow him around, and but they're 
they're a super ragtag group of beings, right? So it's, you know, again, not to overuse the metaphor, but when I walked yesterday down to the beach, I it for sure saw many Ghanas, okay? <laughs> and the Ghanas are sort of like liminal beings who don't really fit in anywhere else. <laughs> and they like to converge together and make a lot of noise, okay? And so they love Shiva for reasons that, that um, are completely apropos, which is that Shiva doesn't recoil from them. He just looks at them with a sort of loving, compassionate gaze. And they, they respond to that because nobody else does that. I mean, they even repulse each other mostly, you know, mostly throwing things at each other all the time. So they follow, they follow Shiva around. And so here they come down the, down the mountain. And the Devas and the Asuras are there. And oh, wow, here comes Shiva. So they're all like, <gasps> they're, they're awestruck, you know, um, that Shiva's making an appearance among them. And you know they steal a few glances and notice that the Ganas bear a striking resemblance to some of those sea creatures that were coming up in the end just before the black sludge came to the surface. Um, and Shiva, anyways, he walks down to the surface of the cosmic ocean and he does something that is absolutely unthinkable. Is he reaches down with his big divine hand and he swoops up the sludge and he holds it up to his face and he goes he takes a bit and and you know the, the Davis and the Asuras are like nauseated just by the thought of smelling that and then he goes and he slurps it into his mouth and he lets it slide across the palate and rest right in the center of his throat like where he can completely savor every putrid essence <laughs> of that of that hala hala Right, where he can just like fully experience it and take it all in. And as he holds it there in his throat, his throat turns bright blue. Right? So, you know, one of Shiva's names is Nilakanta, which means the blue-throated, the blue-throated one. Right? And you'll see, you know, if you didn't already notice this before, you'll notice now that in many colored images of Shiva, he's got this like blue he's the poison drinker, okay? He drinks the poison. So he just holds it there and the idea is that it neutralizes. He neutralizes it in his throat, right? And this of course is um, an enactment of a certain dimension of the kind of consciousness that Shiva represents. So Shiva represents consciousness that is selfless in the sense that it doesn't filter its experience and, and reinterpret what's sort of allowed in in relationship to any particular idea of who it is or what matters. It just allows it all to come in, right? So, so Shiva is um, sometimes called Dayalu, which means the compassionate one in the same context of mythology where he represents pure consciousness in that sense. Consciousness that has no self, has no self-reference point, no self-center, right? No, no sort of um, 
no personal consciousness that's distorting the perception of reality. That's the kind of consciousness that he represents. So that kind of consciousness, and this is the, you know, this is the metaphor for practice, that kind of consciousness is precisely the kind of consciousness that we're trying to cultivate in yoga. And the good news is it's already there. You just have to uncover it, right? You don't actually have to cultivate it, like bring it into being. It is the, um, at the very essence or the very foundation or the very sort of bottom level of consciousness. Consciousness is just like that. It doesn't recoil from anything, which is in a way terrifying. That like You mean everything's on? You mean anything can happen down here on Miami Beach? Yeah. <laughs> it's like that. You don't go down there too late at night, right? Because consciousness in itself is absolutely, um, you might say indifferent, but Shiva has a profound interest in everything that comes into the field of his attention. It's just not a selfish interest. It's not an interest with any particular agenda. It's not part of a, of, of a particular directed inquiry. It's just a selfless adoration of everything that traces across the sensory fields, right? He embraces it all. That selfless conscious embraces everything with perfect equanimity, right? And so I'm told that um, you know, this myth is in part a way to understand um, vairagya, uh, vairagyam, um, which is sometimes translated as like detachment or indifference, right? And so that evokes a certain kind of ascetic, a sort of renunciatory gesture toward the world and toward the objects of experience, maybe even a, a certain kind of recoiling. And yet recoiling is precisely not what this kind, that this this particular um, gesture of um, of Shiva is all about. Right? So, the key to the metaphor is that Shiva doesn't swallow what he takes in, and he doesn't spit it back out. So he doesn't recoil from it, and he doesn't just try to suppress it and bury it either. He just savors it, right? So the, the idea is that the vairagyam is a sort, of, a sort of selfless attention to whatever's presenting itself in the field of experience. And it's detached only in the sense that it doesn't have any agenda. It doesn't want anything from what it's experiencing. But it's wrapped, right? Like fully absorbed, fully immersed, fully fascinated in the in the experience of the object itself. Right? And in, in, in Tantra, that's called chamatkara. It's like um, wonder. Or the word literally means the maker of wonder or the maker of astonishment. Right? And that's like the quality of that kind of consciousness that is simply 
fully absorbed in whatever it is that is happening, which can have any quality whatsoever. Right? So Shiva's act clears the cosmic ocean, and the devas and the asuras are elated to see that the waters are crystal clear, as clear as they've ever been. They rush back into the ocean. Vasuki dutifully, selflessly reappears. Vishnu takes his turtle form, and they resume churning, and some really cool stuff happens. Some you know, celestial music starts playing, and all these <laughs> different embodiments of um, various forms of insight and wisdom start to surface. Right? Don Ventari, the sort of embodiment of Ayurvedic wisdom, comes out of the water from this, and um, Indra's elephant, white elephant, comes out. All these re really cool beings make an appearance. And then finally, um, Sri Lakshmi appears, and she's got her big earthen jug, and she pours the soma out of the jug into the cosmic ocean. All right. So the <laughs> so the devas get their soma in the end, right? It's a little more complicated. There's some some subterfuge that happens, you know. They, they have to Vishnu pars parses it out for them and then they trick the devas and or the asuras so that the devas can get it all. But anyway, and that's, that's the ego responding to the experience of grace. Right? There's the moment of grace and the moment of illu illumination, and then there's the ego's like, like grabbing onto that experience, right? And you know, distorting it. And anyway, um, so the idea here is that the. Um, that these, these darker sides of ourselves, these shadows, these, um, these impulses, thoughts, memories, feelings, and sensations that um, have not been fully integrated into uh, the psyche are the very material on which the yoga practice works. And that the yoga practice is, in some sense, a sort of all-chemical uh, transmutation of that very material into the soma, right? into the, you know, the nectar. And the nectar, I mean, the gods and the devas see it as a sort of drug or something because they're, because they're confused, you know, because they represent these sort of egoic, right? And that's what we do too. We think of these like experiences of spiritual illumination as, you know, various sort of kinds of intoxication and various kinds of like, you know, super exalted transcendent experience, which they absolutely can be, right? But we treat them as something that we're gonna get, right? As something that we're gonna like obtain if we pay our dues, <laughs> right? But notice that the it doesn't it doesn't come like that in the in the myth. Like the gods and the de the gods and the demons, they don't just churn the waters and then the soma finally comes up. There has to be this. There has to be something else. There has to be the intervention of something that is far beyond um, 
the consciousness of the grasping egocentric mind that descends, right? Right? And has at its essence the quality of compassion. And that's what Shiva represents. That kind of consciousness has to intervene and hold within its space all of those dark, shadowy um, figurations of consciousness that we don't know what to do with and that we gradually uncover through practice. So, com so um, compassion is the method in a way, right? Compassion is the method, but it requires, uh, you know, the intervention of something that's beyond method. And if that thing descends, and it doesn't send from beyond you because it is, your it is the very essence of your consciousness, right? It just has to be, that's why it has to be distilled up from the cosmic ocean, it comes up. You churn the mind, you get down to the essence of the thing, and when that makes its appearance, it can be imbibed. And when it's imbibed, when, that, when the soma sort of rains down and fills the nadis, um, that's a metaphor for the complete opening of all perceptual channels to every aspect of reality. But that just is Shiva consciousness. That just is compassion. A selfless interest and adoration in everything that shows itself. Right? That's, that's absolutely unconditional. So that sort of Shiva essence of compassion is both the means and the end of the yoga practice. Right? It's both what we emulate and try to cultivate in ourselves, what we invite into ourselves as the descent of grace, and what we can hope to have intimacy with and be sort of saturated with um, if, if all goes well. Any questions? <laughs> Monica? It's such a good question. And there's sort of like two dimensions of that question. So one you know, way to approach that question is to look at the various ways that Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga not only churns us down to the depths, right? Um, and on that same side, the way that it invites us to hold um, a certain poise in the face of what comes up, right? And then secondly, to um, look at, you know, on the grace side or on the, on the sort of other side, um, what kind of, you know, atmosphere of consciousness we're inviting to sort of, you know, bring into ourselves and what the relationship is, you know, on this side between those practices and that particular consciousness. So anyways, that was way too complicated, but um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, to, to everyone in this room as Ashtanga practitioners, it's, it's sort of obvious that, you know, if Ashtanga does anything, it does churn you, right? 
Um, and that there's also something that um, you must have intuitively felt um, as you, you know, have been churned, um, which is that this practice can somehow help you to sort of move through and perhaps even move beyond various sort of um, obstructions to a more fluid experience of yourself and of the world, right, by working through those things. So the movement in the breath is, you know, the, some of the very obvious ways in which Ashtanga churns us, right? Um, because the movements put us in all of these um, positions which, you know, can which are inherently positions of vulnerability right? or and positions in which certain uh, much earlier stages in our uh, in our biological development are evoked garba pindasana the seed in the womb pose and that, that those taking those sort of you know, those sort of prenatal gestures of coiling in and curling down and sort of holding there, and the kind of emotion that that just taking that gesture, which you'd probably never do as an adult, unless you're doing some kind of you know Ashtanga Vinyasa or some related practice, you know, and you might never do that. And so it, it evokes these different kinds of experiences and in a sense like recalls them, right? And brings them back somehow into, into your space of personal consciousness, right? Um, and at the same time, it invites you to continue to breathe rhythmically and to move gracefully with your entire being through the experience. And that is, you know, of the very essence. It's not part of the practice to have the experience of being, you know, to have some sort of, you know, natal experience evoked in Garbha Pindasana and to collapse and cry. That's fine if that happens, but that's not the method, right? The method is to allow whatever experience happens to emerge from the depths of your being while you're moving and breathing to totally overwhelm any resistance that you might have to experiencing it, and at the same time, to take the next vinyasa, right? And that's like of the essence, that you're, you're not turning away from it, you're not recoiling from it, right? But you're allowing yourself to sort of savor its, its rasa, and you can always pause. Sometimes pausing is, is wonderful. I mean, I'm not suggesting, you know, five breaths only, keep moving. Sometimes when it gets really interesting, you stay a bit, right? You stay a bit, you feel into it more, right? And then, and you just have to be guided by some inner intelligence, right? When it's time to move, you move, but you're not recoiling. You're feeling the residue and the essence of that, the same experience that that position evoked, and you're continuing to breathe rhythmically and to move in a very rhythmic way, and you're probably gonna come back into a position that's very similar in 20 seconds, right? But slightly modified. So you can look at it from a little bit of a different angle, right? 
or one that maybe invites you to go all the way kind of to the other end, a sort of opposing movement, right? It invites you to sort of take a very different uh, energetic posture, um, to hold a very different, a, an energetically different posture, and so to have, you know, a very different, ex a, a very different perspective on the experience that it's evoking, and and. As you, as you breathe really rhythmically and move like that, you know from practicing Ashtanga that it in some sense puts your analytic commentarial mind on idle. It's not that you're, you're, you have no thoughts. You probably do, you know, unless it's really early. Okay, but I'm kidding. You, but they're more like fragments of thoughts. They're more like echoes and half-formed thoughts and not necessarily like a whole you know, meta-commentary that, you know, that anyone else could coherently understand if they were to listen in on what you're thinking, right? It's more like this sort of incoherent jumble, confluence of a number of different streams of consciousness coming all at the same time, right? And when you continue to move and breathe, those streams just continue to flow. And that is very good. Like that's the met. Like that means that it's that the that whatever information you are holding on the level of the body, or maybe on the, the level of emotion, or maybe even on the level of of the mind, is is being reorganized just by 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 moving through the the this space of consciousness um, without uh, being without being subject to whatever kind of reflexive, conditioned response you might have, whether it's in thought, feeling, or bodily gesture to that particular experience. You see what I mean? You wanna cringe, but instead you do up dog. You see what I mean? And you're like, whoa. And that's extremely powerful, right? Extremely, as you know. And what's really wonderful about it, too, is that it doesn't, um, well, I don't say it's, it is wonderful, um, but it's simply different from any kind of um, insight inquiry where you're looking at the contents of your consciousness and sort of reinterpreting their meaning in light of a different kind of experience. It's different from that. I think I've come to believe that that also is extremely important. And there are lots of, so what do I mean? I mean like talk therapy or like dream work or, you know, um, I don't know, Vipassana meditation even that can have that kind of um, almost analytic uh, dimension to it also very important, but this is different. This is not like that. This is a different kind of thing. You're just allowing those things to sort of move through you, sequence through you, potentially sequence out, or to be reorganized through the medium of a more fluid and graceful experience, of a more fluid and graceful way of holding yourself and moving through the experience. And so that's why these things like drishti and like following the breath are so profoundly important. 
because the, the potency of the practice is to be found there. You know? On the other hand, it doesn't work mechanically. Right? It's not like if you just do these movements and you do them slowly without darting your eyes around, that somehow it's going to automatically transform you. It just doesn't. In fact, it can have the opposite effect, right? So yoga practice is super potent and it's dangerous stuff. And that very fact is, it, is, um, is sort of echoed and we're, we're given frequent reminders of it in Indian mythology. How do the Asuras acquire their power? Yoga. When they do tapas, you know, and they're into the intense stuff like we are, you know, they're like, they go in for the Ashtanga. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, they don't actually call it that, you know, but it's the idea is that they, they go in for these very like ascetic, like, like hardcore kind of, um, you know, difficult, physically challenging kind of practices, right? And then the devas, like, they're into chanting and bhakti, seva, stuff like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. And I mean, you know, one, one kind of answer, which I must say right away, is I don't know. You know, who knows? We'll find out, right? But then the second answer is well, I mean, if there's a possibility for Ashtanga doing it, it's sort of like, does it do it on its own? Well, what would that mean? Does it do it on its own? I mean, what is the, it's like, well, what does the Ashtanga do? I mean, do you need to engage in other kinds of inquiry and self reflection? Yeah. Definitely, you know, but any, there's no, there's no, there, there, there could be no form of practice that somehow relieved you from that burden, you know, of reflecting on the contents of your own consciousness. And that's a good reminder because we, you can't, because many people get into various kinds of contemplative practices and meditative practices as an escape, right? And you can learn to move and breathe even through Ashtanga in a way that helps you to sort of fortify yourself against certain kinds of feelings and certain dimensions of your mind. It makes you very strong. And so if you're using it to sharpen the very blades of your mind that keep hacking away at certain thickets, it's probably going to um, help, help you with that. It can, but so can anything any practice that I've ever heard. I mean, of course, 
you can numb yourself with mantra. You can numb yourself with meditation, you know, of any kind if you don't wield it properly. So it's all about how you wield it. You see what I mean? I think Ashtanga is a particularly sharp instrument, right? And so it can really, and people have strong, you know, like the one thing you know for sure is that when someone starts doing Ashtanga, it's going to change them. It's going to make like, it's going to make noticeable changes in their personality, which will soon be reflected outwardly in their life. And everyone who's, that I've ever known who starts a real devoted daily Ashtanga practice has some major life shifting that happens within the first couple, two or three years. It, it you know it rip because all that stuff ripples out because you're always because you're always manifesting whatever your you know your reality is like a, a a manifestation of your psychical state in some in some sense in some important sense and you you always see that when people start to like oh I'm gonna get into this whole Mysore thing and if they really commit and they're really focused then a year or two later it's like something's different right. Does it always change people for the better? I don't know. I don't know. It can't, of course, Ashtanga, like anything else, like any intense study of philosophy, of you know, any form of self-inquiry even, can, um, ha you know, will have as its, um, as its shadow side the potential for a certain kind of rigidity and dogmatism. I think in Ashtanga, it's particularly that we're, we're particularly prone to that. Huh? We're particularly prone to that. Maybe it's because Ashtanga attracts people that are already like pretty fiery and pretty, you know, motivated, and and so then, oh, you know. Um, but it can also that doesn't have to happen. And that's not even, I, don't, I wouldn't even say that's the dominant experience. It's just the one that speaks most loudly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is it the dominant experience? I don't think so at all. I think the dominant, ex the dominant sort of experience of having done, of doing Ashtanga is that you slowly become softer, more perceptive, kinder, more forgiving, and you move through life more fluidly. That's what I see in the good people I know who've been doing Ashtanga for a long time. Like Tim, I met, he was already like that when I met him, but. <laughs> so, uh, j j but just to fit, I mean, what, you know, one, uh, one last sort of point on that idea is that, and, and this takes us right back to the very heart of, of, the, of the lesson of that myth. is that bringing that quality of softness and compassionate attention into your practice is vital. It's of the essence, right? That whatever happened, whatever you do, it's, it's, it's not going to fully work its magic until that starts to come, right? And the practice will probably help that come. <laughs> that was my experience. 
and, and remains my experience. That remains my experience. Um, I, I remember um, just, I mean, to reiterate that same point in a different way. A few months ago, I was um, at, I was sitting at the at the kitchen table of of Richard Freeman, which is a great honor, and, and he's my, my teacher, and I get to check in with him sometimes. And we had been we had been having a conversation about the about sort of you know energetics internally of hatha practice, and you know the the experience of subtle energies and how you work with them to bring them into balance, which is and that's hatha technique, right? That, that is the substance of Hatha technique. We're like working with these different energies in the body and working on balancing them because they seem to open us out to certain states of mind that if we sort of immerse ourselves in those states of mind, and that would be, let's call that in a general sense, meditation, right? Where you're sort of immersing yourself in a certain, in a certain state of mind. It would be like the practice of meditation then there's something else called meditation where you're not that's beyond technique right it's not a state of mind at all but it's but a state of being right and what is that state of being that state of absolute openness to everything that's happening right which you know i assume that most of you in this room like me have only had little tastes here and there of that kind of experience, but have in those little tastes had our, our perceptions sort of reoriented in such a way that that, though that that experience seems to be the very touchstone of perceptual clarity, right? The touchstone of, of the real is like, that kind of state, you know, and that's it. And this is this, and this question is is always like I'm like I like I'm always hung on this question in a way, right? Except in those rare moments, just like, but how do you, like, what what exactly is this like totally mysterious relationship between setting up these states of balanced energy in the body, which is absolutely exhilarating and intoxicating, like it feels so good. So of course you want to do that, you know, and you do that and you do that. And, and, but like, what's the relationship between, because presumably it's said that's it's not a causal relationship necessarily because you, you can't make grace descend. But you can do these techniques. You can learn this. You can refine your senses. You can refine your abilities to feel into your body, right, to an astonishing degree. You can refine your abilities to hold these balances and to, and to sort of rest your attention in these more subtle levels of your being in a way that's totally intoxicating. But what's the, diff what's the relationship between that experience and, you know, real enlightenment, you know? Even just, mo just moments of enlightenment, like glimpses of enlightened experience where there is no technique, where there's nothing that you're trying to do, you know, and where it doesn't matter to, you know, how cold it is in the room, whether you've got on your favorite pair of yoga pants or, you know, whether you've got a crick in your back or you're sitting on something lumpy or not, right? 
they're like, what is, like, how do you, and I said, how do you, like, how do you get from that, that state of sort of intoxicating, exquisite balance and experience to, you know, a real state of meditative illumination? It's the mystery of the, yeah, right, it's the mystery of grace. Just a bit. I I'm still in the aspiration state. I like still feel like the desire, and that was part of the conversation we were having. It's like I just I'm so like like I want it so bad, and I know that that's you know. And he said, "Oh, that's good. That's good." <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, that's good. You're like I want it so bad, but I know that. But in that state, you don't. There's you don't want it anymore. But there's the, there's the surrender, right? There's the surrender that has to. And I said, "But so what do you like? What's the?" What do you do? And he said, be kind. Just be kind. <laughs> and that, you know, that's this is the summation of some 40 years of study. You know, by a brilliant mind <laughs> into, you know, various, um, you know, many different contemplative traditions. It's be kind. So that is that 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 sort of compassionate, loving, selfless consciousness, and that's like it's it's and and it's such a profound reminder because somehow even the oh yeah yeah, and you oh yeah that's what I need you're right, like you know and the and yet like in every case that's always the answer I find in myself, like I spin and I spin and I spin, for weeks and weeks you know reading and trying and sitting and like. <laughs> so you have to, you know, the Ashtanga is like, it's so, ah, it's so juicy and it's so, it's so fierce, right? And it's like so, because you're, 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 because the energies are so strong that you're working with. And so you go into it and it can be so, so sweaty and so deep and so, and so sort of, you know. And, and all of that, and the you know part of the balance is to sort of you know like move through all that and sort of face all of the sort of inherent challenge of the Ashtanga practice, which is which is kind of outrageous, you know, sort of outrageously difficult, right? And you sort of embrace all of that, and you know, with a sense of humor and with kindness toward yourself toward your teacher and toward your studio and toward your community, right? To be that like that ability to be sort of, you know, forgiving and and sort of, you know, all embracing of everything that may come up in the field of your journey is of the very essence of the kind of consciousness that you're trying to become more intimate with. Yeah, I mean.
absolutely. And I think if I understand your question, it's like, well, any, you know, any, any contemplative practice is going to is going to churn the mind in the sense that it's going to bring your attention down into other spaces of consciousness that are more fundamental than, but that inform the the sort of more prosaic consciousness um, in which uh, you you know that sort of that sort of you know voices your running story about who you are and what you feel and what you think right so like so in terms of the I mean I think of the eight limbs as you know eight uh, sort of dimensions of uh, or eight let's say like modalities even of practice. <coughs> know that also um, and they're not exclusive right and so one thing that's so cool about Ashtanga Vinyasa and what makes it so potent is that it combines various dimensions of the eight limb that various modalities of the eight limb path and like integrates them in this super powerful way right so it is you know at its core a breathing practice it's a pranayama practice but instead of sitting really still, you do it in motion, but then you sit still. You didn't finish unless you did Shavasana, right? Like that's of the essence. So stillness is a huge part of it, right? Um, and, you know, Drishti, let's say, brings in the, the idea of, um, you know, focusing the senses, right? Um, and let's call that pratyahara. And pratyahara is not like a, a withdrawing from the senses necessarily, but a taking in of the senses that doesn't allow attention to get distracted by any of the by any of the traces that go across the sensory field. Does that make sense? So in other words, pratyahara is a refinement yours perceptual sensitivity pratyahara makes you a better listener a better seer a better feeler right when you practice it you're not trying to suppress sensory impressions right you're trying to focus your attention across your sensory fields in such a way that sort of allows you to take it all in to sort of see the whole as you might like you know, to really see a crowd, you don't focus on any individual, right? You kind of look at the, like, wow, if you want to see how big it is, you might have to kind of hold your eyes still and just take it back, that kind of thing. And it's a, and in order to integrate all of that, it's, you know, it's a dharana, it's a concentrated effort to integrate all of that and to sort of hold your attention. And if you're lucky enough to have it all come together in something very elegant and graceful, it becomes low, right, becomes something that, like, your attention just flows along with um, the, the flow of the internal states, right, that are moving through your consciousness as you practice, right, if that is sustained without disruption for a time, then it can be thought of as dharana, and it will become a dhyana, if it happens almost like if it starts to happen spontaneously in the sense that it's almost like 
there's no effort anymore in practice. You're just moving through, sort of following along this, this exquisite um, you know, unfoldment of prana. And you're just experiencing that almost as if it's passive. And you're just riveted to that. You know, it's this dwelling becomes a dhyana. become a samadhi? You could. You could become a samadhi if you were just riveted there. You can't even pull yourself away. Right? And this can happen also in the, in the and you have to think of the, the, the Ashtanga practice, you have to think of the moments after the practice as part of the practice itself. Because that's, that's where you experience the shesha, the residue, the echo. And nothing really shows it. You, don't, you haven't really seen anything unless you've seen its shadow, too, its echo, its residue, right? You have to listen. You know, when the symphony's over, you let it continue to echo and resonate, right? And if people were really tuned, there's always that guy that wants to be that first guy who stands up and goes, bravo! You know, and you, ah. And everyone loves that moment when the bubble bursts, but you kind of hate that guy, too. You're like, do some yoga, man. Like, we should have sat there for 15 minutes, you know? That was, like, the best part. <laughs> that moment where it's just trailing away and you're just sort of absorbed in the residue of what happened. So you, you know, whether, that, whether you really connect to that in Shavasana or connect with that in sitting up after Shavasana and just feeling into that, you know? But interesting, very interesting things can happen there. Some of those energetic movements that you were cultivating during the practice can continue to flow and hold themselves in balanced states, and that can rivet your attention so fully and so completely that you'll find yourself just sitting there until someone says, hey man, it's lunchtime, wait for work, you know, and it's, oh good, this could be called a samadhi state, okay? <laughs> that happens so and that's a practice too you know and to sort of steep your attention in that state which is a more sort of fundamental um, but it's it's just an experience of a more uh, of, a, of, a, of a sphere of your consciousness that's more fundamental than what you ordinarily experience so it's just a dropping of attention further down into the depths of your conscious being and there's, you know, as you said, there's a seamless integration all the way through, you know. And the only limbs that we didn't discuss there were yama and niyama, right? But we, but this, let's think of ya, let's think of the essence of yama and niyama as cultivating this quality of selfless, detached, um, but loving and interested um, attention. And, you know, if you're ripping people off in your daily life and creating isolation and division wherever you go with your actions, that state of consciousness is not available to you. It's just like that, <laughs> right? So you have to cultivate and bring that quality of attention into what you're doing, and then it becomes absolutely powerful. 
thank you. So in five minutes, we'll have another talk. <laughs> um, but we can take, yeah, we can take a, a little short break.